Aloha! Welcome back to the Ghost Lore of Hawaii Paranormal Paradise Podcast. Ah, I see you brought your Ghost Lore of Hawaii blanket. For those who don't know, the merch store is set up. We have a ton of branded merchandise. Six or seven different options for t-shirt quality, pins, stickers, phone cases, pillows... I'll include the link to the shop in the show notes, and you can find it in the bio of my Instagram account. When you purchase Ghost Lore of Hawaii merchandise, your support goes towards more content, and we get a step closer to regular weekly episodes. So, uh, oh, I also want to thank Anna or Anna for purchasing a shirt on the first day of the drop. Mahalo very much. So, uh, again, the link is in my bio on my Instagram account, ghostlore.of.hawaii. So this episode is part two of the hauntings at the UH Manoa. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you start with that episode, unless you're some type of psycho. I won't judge. So I have a couple green bottles on ice in that cooler over there help yourself. I also got some ghostly ganja or what we like to call paranormal pakalolo on this podcast. Yeah, that's a lot of pee. <coughs> so I'll keep it brief, get comfortable, cozy up to the fire, and let's get into this. In the last episode, We left off with Emma midway through her freshman year at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. She had made a bunch of friends and had started dating Scott, a star on the men's volleyball team. Things seemed to be going well until they weren't. Trigger warning. This episode involves depression, suicide, and a description of a body postmortem. Although these topics are brief, it may be disturbing to some listeners. More and more of her floor mates began approaching Emma with stories of seeing Scott out with other women at the bars or leaving with him after volleyball practice. One night, Scott left Emma's dorm telling her he had night practice. Emma followed him as he walked to the sand volleyball courts on campus straight up to a tall blonde who had been waiting and slapped her on her behind. She turned around looking pissed, but then kissed Scott in a way Emma had never seen. It broke her heart. The story goes, Emma took it so hard She started flunking all of her classes by the end of the first semester. 
She stopped going to most classes, choosing to stay in bed instead, staring blankly at her roommate's empty closet across from her bed. Scott had used the closet to store a bunch of his clothes for nights he stayed over, but he had someone pick up his things for him, and it was now empty, just like Emma. She lost weight, barely eating as the weight of depression increased. Friends tried helping, calling Scott a player, which he was, and trying to get Emma out of her dark cloud. When she did attend class here or there, she never paid attention, just staring down at her notebook, pen in hand. But before finals even started, she was placed on academic probation. Even if she'd aced every single final, she'd still fail all of her classes. Next semester, Emma would have to keep her grades above a certain grade point average, or she'd be kicked out of UH. Her family had no clue how bad her grades and depression had gotten. They noticed the decline in phone calls, but just took it to a busy college girl who had new friends and her first boyfriend. Her parents had tried so hard to contain their little girl in a safe bubble with their rules and restrictions, but this left Emma naive to how the world can work. Hey, Emma. It's Katie. Katie, the resident advisor on Emma's floor, had been worried about the poor girl. She watched as Emma fell head over heels for the smooth-talking mainlander. Unfortunately, Emma would have fallen for anyone with a smile and a few good lines, Katie thought. She knew Scott as a playboy. She'd seen him at the nightclubs dancing and making out with random women. Ladies love me. Emma was too young to get into the bars and believed Scott was just hanging out with the boys. Katie tried dropping clues that he was a douche. No, Emma, seriously, he's a douche. And that he was just feeding her lines. But Emma was blind to it all, always laughing it off. E-M-M-A Emma Emma Katie knocked Hopeful Then paused Listening for movement through the door Emma's footsteps could be heard Slowly approaching the door And after a brief second of silence It unlocked and opened Oh my god, Emma Katie couldn't hide the shock in her voice. Once beautiful Emma, who could normally stop men dead in their tracks with her effortless beauty, had transformed. Her once dark, tan skin was now pale 
for weeks locked up. Emma's matted, tangled hair fell in front of her face, blocking her bloodshot eyes. What was once a full, healthy woman was now a frail, emaciated shell. Hey girl, just wanted to check in before taking off for the break. You're headed back to Big Island to see your family, right? For break? Hey, Emma. Emma just stood silently, staring at the ground. Emma, you're really starting to worry me. Your counselor told me about your academic probation, but said that he couldn't get in touch with you to discuss a plan of attack for next semester. Emma, this is pretty serious. You could get kicked out. What does it matter? Emma interrupted quietly, not once making eye contact with Katie, continuing to stare at the ground. What do you mean? Emma, we talked so much when classes started. You were so cheerful and excited for your major. I miss hanging out with you, you know, like we used to. I know I'm your RA, but you're more of a friend to me than someone I'm advising. I can't remember the last time we talked. Emma stayed silent. Is there... Do you want to talk about anything? It doesn't have to be about that asshole. Shut up! How dare you? That's my boyfriend. If you ever, ever talk stink about him again. Emma slammed the door, barely missing Katie's face. Katie was stunned. She had never seen Emma that mad, let alone anyone. She wanted to apologize about bringing Scott up, but honestly was shook. The fire in Emma's eyes scared Katie. And what was Emma talking about her boyfriend, Scott? Scott had a new girlfriend now. Scott did have a new girlfriend now. Tracy with an I. The tall blonde who Emma had seen kiss Scott at the volleyball courts. Emma confronted Scott then and there about what she'd witnessed. Scott, like the ass he was, replied, Ooh, busted. Yeah, you weren't supposed to see that. I was meaning to tell you, I think we should start, you know, seeing other people and stuff. Emma questioned Scott about all the sweet stuff he had said, about how happy she made him. E, you know you make me happy. I love making out with you. I love making out, period. You know how good I am at kissing. But I think I need a little more right now. Like someone that puts out, you know? But thanks for letting me crash at your place. You got all the snacks. And I didn't have to waste gas driving back to my place. Well, 
See you around. Hey, Tracy, wait up. Hey, you want to get some pokey nachos? Scott jogged towards Tracy, who had been pretending to read a bulletin board off to the side, but was obviously listening and snickering the entire time. Awkward. <laughs> Emma stood frozen and watched as the two chuckled and walked off. Scott's arm around his new girlfriend. Emma stayed, standing there, long after they had walked out of sight, tears running down her face. Emma woke up and opened her eyes. A gentle breeze pushed at her curtain, the mid-morning sun brightening her dorm room. Hey, good morning, sweetie. I didn't want to wake you, Scott whispered. Emma stretched a deep, long stretch and turned to Scott who had been sitting at the chair by her desk. He was wearing a crisp polo, dress shorts, and casual shoes, not the usual athletic gear and slippers he lived in. I thought we'd grab some brunch at that diner we went to for our first date, and then take a drive around the island, maybe check out the North Shore? The winter swell should be hitting, should be fun. Emma called Scott out on his hatred for driving. He'd even avoided the two-mile drive to his apartment any chance he could. I know how much you've been wanting to hit up the North Shore. It reminds you of the area you grew up, right? Emma blushed at Scott's recollection of that conversation they had on their first date. How could she forget? It was her first date with the boy. Remember when I first asked you out? Scott chuckled. They were now seated in his car, headed to the restaurant. How I saw you from across the lecture hall? The moment I saw you, I couldn't take my eyes off of you. Then we made eye contact. Emma remembered. She blushed as he flashed his smile at her. He tracked her down after lecture was over and walked her to her next class. She was shy, but he was charismatic. She lingered on that first conversation and the 10-minute walk. Before she knew it, they were seated at the busy diner. The chaos of the restaurant was muted by the way he stared into her eyes, just as he did that first date. When he leaned in for a kiss that night, it had been so unexpected, she wasn't ready for it. But this time, she kissed him, both melting into each other's lips. The happiness, so real, 
the. Hey Emma, it's Katie. Emma was startled out of her dream. She lay there, in her messy, filthy dorm room. The shades were permanently down these days. For the past month, Emma chose to lock herself up in her room, hoping to live in her dreams. E M M A. Not long after Scott broke her heart that night, and the depression began to hit, Emma started to have these dreams, like Toshi's dreams. These were vivid, so vivid, Emma could feel, smell, taste everything. Every dream was of Scott and his undying love for her. However, each time she was ripped from her dreams, she felt a piece of herself die. At first, she knew these dreams were unhealthy, but it was the only thing that made her feel anything but sadness. She ignored the "we miss you" messages slipped under her door from friends she made earlier in the semester, choosing to sleep more and more of the days away. In the blink of an eye, a few days turned into weeks. Then a month. Finals were finished. Most of the girls had already left for winter break. But Katie wanted to check on Emma before leaving for break herself. That conversation with Emma, slamming the door in Katie's face, was the last one Katie would have with Emma. It would be the last conversation anyone would have with Emma. The grief she felt each time she awoke from her dreams was too much for Emma. When Katie left the Mokihana dorms for winter break that December afternoon, Emma decided the pain was too much, and hanged herself in the empty closet she used to stare blankly at across from her bed. With students mostly gone for break, no one found Emma. Until the janitor noticed the smell a week later. After the investigation into Emma's death was completed and ruled a suicide, the dorm room was sealed off from use for other students for the remainder of the school year. Her friends sadly walked past the locked door. Choosing to remember the Emma they had befriended earlier that year, 
Briefly, the following year, Emma's room was opened back up for student housing. But it was too soon after the tragedy, and people remembered. After a discussion with students and community members, the school decided the room should be used for storage indefinitely. That was until Toshi's freshman year, almost 20 years later. Yeah, you got me. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Someone's at my door. Hey, Toshi. Hey, what's up, man? Everything okay? Jerry asked, genuinely confused at the frail Japanese boy standing at his door. Hi, Jetty. Toshi sheepishly greeted. It had only been a day since their conversation and dinner. And Jerry honestly didn't think he got through to Toshi. Toshi explained everything was fine and not to worry. He wanted to ask Jerry if the offer to spend the night was still on the table. Except, it was phrased, was the table still up for the offering? Of course, Toshi. <laughs> There's two beds in here. I just have to clean up a bit, but yeah, yeah, come in. Hey, guys, I gotta go. No, F you. No. Uh, uh, Alright. Shoot. Toshi shuffled into Jerry's room. They played video games. Toshi, enjoying games like The Sims, where he could make up imaginary worlds. But he also kicked ass in Call of Duty. The rest of the night was spent gaming and watching movies. Was a ghost the whole time. Oh. Jerry actually enjoyed hanging out with Toshi. After Toshi warmed up a bit, he was actually pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, he liked weird stuff, and he looked all bus. The dark inner circles under his eyes, and thin as a bone. But he was alright, thought Jerry. Plus, Toshi had the decency to shower before coming over the first shower in over a week. When they ended up passing out around 3am that morning, Toshi fell into a deep, deep sleep. A sleep with dreams of his parents and home back in Kyoto. When Toshi woke up later that morning, he felt refreshed like he hadn't in... He couldn't remember how long. He got out of bed, a spring in his step, and headed to the bathroom to do his regular morning routine. Bathroom, wash face, brush teeth. A routine that had become anything but regular. He checked his body out for any new scratches and saw none. He also had color to his complexion he hadn't seen in ages. He was still pale, but the gray, clammy skin was now rosy 
and smooth. It was a Monday, still only the fourth day of classes in his first semester, but missing the first several days your first year in college was not a good look. Toshi attended all of his classes that Monday and went to all of his professors to apologize for his absence. He blamed extreme homesickness and culture shock that caused anxiety attacks, feeling bad for the lie, but not about to tell them he was in love with an imaginary woman. All of his professors understood, but made it clear to Toshi he could not miss any more classes. Grateful, Toshi thanked them and headed back to his room after a long day on campus. He felt relief and the grip of his dreams lessened, but was worried about falling back into his old habit. Like an addict who knew he had a problem, Toshi wanted to get better. But still, the thought of parting ways with his drug of choice frightened him. The last thought he had before falling asleep in his bed that night was his commitment to get better. Even if it meant moving on from his dream girl. That night, back in his own dorm room, Toshi's dreams were different. Horribly different. He saw he was in his room, alone. The sun peeked through the drawn curtains, barely illuminating the dorm room. Although the room felt familiar, Toshi didn't recognize the decor or personal items. The empty closet across from his bed, the one that would have belonged to his roommate, was still empty. The door to the closet wide open. The dark room was still. The air stale. He walked to his door opened it and stuck his head out into the hall it was dead quiet no sounds of rowdy floor mates or people headed to class outside he gently closed the door and was hit with that smell again (coughs) he instantly recognized the scent that filled his dreams and from the first day moving in. Only, this time, for some reason, Toshi knew what that smell was. The smell of death. He ran to the window and opened it, sticking his head out, gasping for fresh air. Still confused, he headed to his bed and sat down, trying to make sense of this different dream world. Where was his dream girl? 
then Toshi realized the once wide open closet door was now closed it had closed when he rushed to open the window weird Toshi thought in his dream then movement from the closet Toshi slowly took a few steps towards the closet again the flutter of movement Toshi whipped the door open hoping to catch whatever was making the noise he stumbled back practically falling onto his bed a woman no a woman's body the badly decaying body was hanging by a belt that was secured to the bar used to hang clothes the body hanged motionless the woman's head was facing down her dark hair concealing her face her arms hung still at her sides scuff marks on the floor below the woman's lifeless body from her struggle were visible the height of the bar used to tie the belt was just tall enough where the woman's toes barely brushed the ground toshi had never seen a dead body before the shock froze him in his seat scratches in the interior of the closet from her struggle were also visible then toshi saw something some kind of symbol toshi squinted his eyes trying to make out the carving holding his nose He leaned in closer to the body. His face less than a foot away from the woman's drooping head. Toshi saw the symbol was a heart about an inch big carved deep into the ceiling of the closet. The scratches within the closet from the woman's cracked fingernails during her struggle distracted from the carved symbol but yet it was still visible Toshi moved closer still morbidly curious of the victim Normally there'd be no way Toshi would be this close to the body but in the dream things weren't always normal Toshi's hands were sweaty as he moved closer about to brush the hair from the woman's obstructed face her face was not visible from the hair and the downward angle it was rested Toshi paused for a second feeling his heartbeat pulsing 
in his temples and chest. For some reason, the heart caught Toshi's eye again, and for just a second, he glanced up at it. When Toshi looked back down to the woman's face, their eyes made contact. Her eyes were now open, staring straight into Toshi's eyes. A scowl, no, snarl, now on the woman's decomposing face. Toshi didn't recognize the woman. He was certain this was not his dream girl. Before Toshi could react, the woman lunged at him, arms outreached in front of her, mouth agape as if she would devour him whole. The belt snapped as the woman shot forward, just as Toshi was falling backwards onto his bed. The woman's moist, putrid hands wrapped around Toshi's neck, squeezing so hard he thought the pressure would pop the top of his head open. Her sharp nails, chipped from clawing at the interior of the closet, sinking into his skin as she squeezed. She was straddling Toshi, her face inches from his. Liquid from her decomposing face dripped onto and into Toshi's mouth. Just as his vision began to darken, as he was spiraling into unconsciousness, Toshi was slammed awake by his phone's alarm. But something was wrong. Toshi tried gasping for air, but could still feel invisible hands squeezing at his neck. He struggled, the weight pressing on his chest. Toshi's lungs burned, The blood being trapped in his head from being choked made him think his eyes would explode. He clawed at the clammy hands pressing into him while he kept on gasping for air. He suddenly saw visions of his parents, his childhood, his home back in Japan as tears filled his eyes. His mind coming to terms with this being the end and reliving the best moments of Toshi's life during his last few moments alive. As his view of the dorm ceiling began to spiral into darkness, everything, the weight, the choking, the pain of jagged fingernails digging into his neck released instantly. Toshi gasped for air like a swimmer breaking through the water's surface. His vision began to focus as the oxygen entered his blood. When he was finally able to breathe without hyperventilating, shock 
wearing off. Toshi bolted from his room, straight to Jerry's down the hall. He pounded on the door until Jerry opened, sleepy-eyed, but terrified at the unexpected wake-up call. Hey, Toshi, is everything okay? Toshi explained the nightmare he just had and tied it into the nightmares he brought up to Jerry during their first dinner a few days back. In his broken English, he told Jerry about the weight on his chest, like a 300-pound person was sitting on him as they squeezed his neck. Oh, Toshi, I know what this is, Jerry said, sleepily rubbing his eyes. In Hawaii, we call these uh, pressing or choking ghosts. It happens all over. I even heard about it happening over in the Kahawai dorms, over by Lincoln Hall. Anyway, it's super common, but I mean, still scary. Some folks say it's sleep paralysis, but cannot be. You're supposed to be paralyzed, but you could move, right? Toshi nodded. He wasn't paralyzed during the attack. He kicked and fought as he tried to remove the invisible hands that were around his neck. Kanashibari! Toshi shouted unexpectedly. Bless you, Jerry said. No, no, Kanashibari. Toshi repeated slower. He explained to Jerry he knew what this was. He remembered the supernatural tales his obasan or grandma told him about the nights this would happen to her when she lived out in the country of Japan. The Japanese had stories of being choked by a spirit while an immense weight pressed on the victim's chest. Hawaii is known as a melting pot of cultures. Beginning in the mid-1800s, a huge influx of immigrants and entrepreneurs from all over the world flocked to Hawaii to work the sugar plantations in search for a better life. Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, Korean, and Portuguese laborers flooded the islands, bringing with them their popular foods and customs of the culture, as well as their ghost lore. Spooky voice. The Japanese had the Kanashibari and Obakineko, or ghost cat, that slowly sucks the life and soul out of its victim. Filipinos had the Aswang, a vampire-like monster who feeds on the ambiotic fluid of pregnant women, often reportedly seen in the Eva Plain area of Oahu. Hawaiians had stories of the Menehune, small elf-like entities about two feet tall that were extremely mischievous and master craftsmen. There are stories of the first Polynesians who came to Hawaii finding it already occupied with tiny, 
masterfully built villages all across the islands. Tales of the Menehune still being seen today are told. Paranormal experts believe that not only did popular tales of ghosts and monsters travel to Hawaii with these immigrants, but the actual ghosts and monsters may have come with them. Whatever was left of Toshi's desire to live in his dreams were gone. The experience he had that night scared him straight. But why was that dream so different? Why was he attacked? And where was his dream girl? The woman he saw in the closet was not the girl in his dreams. That was someone else. All throughout the day, as he attended his classes, Toshi pondered the thought. As the last class ended for the day, Toshi had come to the conclusion that the dream girl he loved was the ghost of the woman he found hanged in the closet. It must have been. When he spent that night at Jerry's, it must have infuriated the spirit. Toshi headed straight to Jerry's room to explain his hypothesis. Jerry was already on the same page. Earlier in the day, Jerry called a family friend, Kupuna Kimo, for some advice. Kupuna is used to describe a highly respected elder in the community, someone with great life experiences who help guide others with their knowledge. Kimo was a kahu, or spirit guide, who performed ceremonial blessings of new homes, businesses, and even vehicles. He would bless the land with Hawaiian sea salt and spritzes of water, using tea leaf, all while chanting his blessings in Hawaiian. Kimo was also sensitive to the spirit world. Since he was a child, Kimo could see and feel spirits. He told Jerry he felt it was necessary to bless the room and help the lost soul find its way. Jerry told Toshi that if he was okay with it, Kimo could stop by sometime this week. Toshi agreed, and they made time for Kimo to stop by on Thursday, which was in two days. Until then, Jerry told Toshi he could crash in his room. During those two days, Toshi didn't dream once of the woman. His appearance continued to improve as did his circle of friends. Toshi had a class with Kobayashi-san, the freshman on his floor that lived 20 minutes away from Toshi's hometown, and the two bonded over home. Kobayashi's new girlfriend, Megan, a freshman from Oregon who loved anime and all things Japan, 
was taking a Japanese language class and loved to practice her new words and phrases with Toshi. The three of them hung out at Megan's dorm room in a different complex most days. For some reason, she didn't like the Hale Aloha building, Kobayashi san told Toshi when they walked to class one day. He told Toshi that Megan could sense ghosts and didn't like the feeling she got in our building. Toshi's hair stood on the back of his neck and arms. He confessed to Kobayashi about the dreams and the Kanashi body, asking if he thought that's what Megan was sensing. Kobayashi wasn't sure, but was now very interested to find out. He suggested bringing Megan to the room blessing with Kimo, but not telling her about Toshi's experiences. It would be a cool way to see how closely their visions lined up, Kobayashi exclaimed in Japanese. And surprise, surprise, what started off as a two parter is now a three parter. Hey, just like the Vax. So you get back to back to back weekly episodes for the story. Seriously, sorry for switching it up, but I didn't realize how much longer there was to this tale. It's still pretty tough to gauge how long a story will be based off of text alone. But thank you for tuning in. I hope you're liking this one. It's based on real hauntings that happened on campus. So um, tune in next week. Mahalo. While an immense, <clears throat> while an immense, while an immense, while an immense, while an while an immense weight pressed on the victim's chest. Oh, so. <laughs> Got it.